My God, hello and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast, presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it, and whatever your definition of insane NBA happenings is, I feel like tonight probably met that expectation. My name is Joe Wolfon, of course. I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Cash, how you doing? I mean, I'm I'm flabbergasted. I'm shook. I'm at a loss for words. Not really. I have a lot of them. This was we were just talking off air, and you asked me like like where this ranks in kind of surprise playoff results. And obviously, we're talking about the Clippers <laughs> blowing yet another three-one lead in the Western Conference semifinals, and uh, now going on fifty years as an NBA franchise in three different cities, still not making the conference finals. But I'd say like, you know, without taking anything away from the Nuggets, and I'm sure we'll get into, you know, the credit they deserve. And I know this was a 2-3 matchup, but when you consider that it was 3-1 and the championship favorites with the reigning finals MVP and Paul George uh, had that 3-1 lead, built leads of 16, 16, and 12 in games 5, 6, and 7. And again, with Kawhi freaking Leonard on the team, the fact that that team lost to this Nuggets team, like as I mentioned to you off the air, it almost feels like an eight seed just beat a one seed. Like that's that's how perplexing I think this result is. And yeah, I mean, they actually led by nineteen. Oh, in in game six, so you undersold that even a bit, as if that was possible to do. I mean, it's almost inexplicable how badly they got shellacked in the second half of three straight games. Did it happen in similar ways? I guess it was kind of like the same guy who kept doing it to them. And really, I I don't entirely know what they could or should have done about what Jokic was doing to them because they tried to make him a scorer and past times that was the move with Jokic, right? He wanted to make him be a scorer because if you unlocked his playmaking, it was just going to be trouble. You're going to give up wide open threes. You're going to give up backdoor cuts. He was going to make the right pass and sending extra bodies at him was not necessarily a winning strategy. And he was often a kind of hesitant scorer. Like if you gave him those opportunities to just score one-on-one, he wasn't entirely comfortable doing that. And That was sort of the way that the Clippers played him for a lot of this series. They tried to make him a scorer. They tried to do what the Jazz did, which was just sort of let him be a pick-and-pop guy. And if he was going to spend time out on the perimeter, like they were going to live with that rather than letting him feast on the block. But he shot the lights out, and he scored in single coverage in the post. So they spent basically this entire game sending double teams at him. He completely picked them apart with his passing, as is his want. And, you know, he finishes this game with 13 field goal attempts, 16 total true shooting possessions, 16 points. And yet he was by far the best. Well, was he by far the best player on the floor? Jamal Murray was pretty damn good. But he finishes his game with 16 points, 22 rebounds, 13 assists. Two steals and three blocks. I thought his defense was actually fantastic. This maybe was his best defensive game of the the whole playoff so far. Maybe the best defensive game of his postseason career. And the Clippers. And and what a postseason career it's been, by the way. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
Um, and, and the Clippers just had no answer for him. And, you know, Ivica Zubac, who you may recall, I wrote about in the preview for the series saying that he was going to be a really important figure in the series for the Clippers and that I would be happy to pick this as like a short series for the Clippers if I had faith in Doc Rivers playing Zubac as much as he ought to. And like, I guess you could say like up to this point in the series, he did do that. Zubac was playing, you know, around 30 minutes a game. And it's not like he was a world beater in this one. He played 14 minutes and he was a minus 10 and he picked up three fouls, which I guess is why Doc didn't feel comfortable going back to him. But I thought, you know, and especially with Rivers saying after the game that like his guys were just gassed and people were asking for breathers after three minute sprints and like he just didn't feel like anybody had the the right conditioning to get through this. And you've got, you know, probably your best post defender, your best rim protector sitting on the bench at 14 minutes with only three fouls on him. It is a little strange to me that he didn't get back in that game. And that was one of, I think, several pretty curious decisions that Doc Rivers made in this series. This was not a great series for Doc Rivers. And, you know, terrible. Um, this is obviously the second time he's been on the wrong end of a blown 3-1 lead. And I think it's less excusable this time, even than it was in 2015. Like this is a more talented team, I think, than that 2015 team was. They had a bigger edge in this series to me than that Clippers team had against the Rockets in 2015. And you mentioned, you know, the leads that they had in all three of the games that they wound up losing and they just couldn't find the defensive answers for the Murray and Jokic two-man game. Yeah, and um, Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell aren't the defensive answer for that two-man game. And yet, for a lot of this, I shouldn't say a lot of this series, but for too much of this series and too much of this game, Doc Rivers relied on those two guys and and just kept running them out there. You know, like, Jermichael Green was so much better in this matchup than Montrezl Harrell was and was better in Game 7 than Montrezl Harrell was. And Montrezl Harrell ends up playing two more minutes than Jermichael Green in this game. Like, there's so many different things you can point to. There was the lineup that Doc Rivers rolled out to close the second quarter, which included all three of Williams, Harrell, and a clearly hobbled Landry Shamit to close the quarter. And it was during that time that Jamal Murray was putting the finishing touches on a 20-point second quarter and, you know, cutting what was once a 12-point Clippers lead down to two at halftime. And he just cooked Shamit. Yeah. And again, like, Shamit was also clearly hobbled. And, and so 60% of your lineup to close the half in a game seven, in a series where you've already blown leads, was Lou Williams, Montres Harrell, and a hobbled Landry Shaman. What do you think Jamal Murray's going to do to that? Like, um, you know, coming out, I think you were tweeting about it, but uh, coming out of halftime in the third quarter, the Clippers started doubling Jamal Murray on Murray Jokic pick and rolls and bringing so much attention to him. And it's like, okay, so you're going to live with giving maybe the best passing big man of all time and forget big man, one of the best passers of any position of his generation, four on three advantages every single time down the court. You know what Jokic did with those advantages? He picked the Clippers apart mercilessly. I went back and looked at some of the numbers because I was, I was writing about it. And by the time this podcast airs, people can read uh, my reaction to game seven. And it's no coincidence that six of the Nuggets, 13 three-pointers in this game, came in that third quarter and came basically in a flurry of that third quarter when the Clippers just repeatedly doubled Murray 
and let Jokic go ham off the ball. Like it, it boggled my mind. Okay, you do it once, you do it twice. I don't know. Maybe you're trying to mix up coverages. How do you do it over and over and over again and have Jokic just keep finding open shooters? Like it, it didn't make sense. We joked uh, in a text exchange. You did about because I, I mentioned like this Doc Rivers is treating this game like a Tuesday night in January, and you made the joke that it was like Budenholzer esque. And you know what? It's true. Like if we're gonna rip Budenholzer for that stuff, Doc Rivers shouldn't be immune to the same criticism just because he has won a championship twelve years ago. Like he was not good in this game. He was out coached by Mike Malone. He was not good in this series. And as you mentioned, that's now the second time in six seasons that his Clippers team, as the higher seed have blown a 3-1 lead in the West semifinals. Doc Rivers, you know, is a good coach. I think for the most part, he's a solid access nose guy. He's always been great in terms of uh, after timeout plays. He is a champion. Like, I know that. He's a very big emotional leader of that franchise. And, and we know that. He's a culture guy, and it won't take any of that away from him. Having said that, Doc Rivers has been on that job now for, what, seven, eight years? And has had some pretty damn talented teams and they haven't played a conference finals game yet. There are not many coaches in the league. And by not many, I'd probably say zero other coaches in the league that survived that stretch. I mean, Doc Rivers obviously has built up a ton of goodwill around the league, has a fantastic reputation. I think has proven himself to be a very good coach, but for him to have had the kind of playoff moments that he's had, the, the collapses that he has overseen is... Yeah, it's a lot. I don't want to put too much of this on him either. I do think, you know, the the center rotation could have been managed better. I mean, I think it just became clear at a certain point that Harrell shouldn't be on the floor when Jokic was also on the floor. And maybe he felt like he didn't have a choice in this one because Zubac got an early foul trouble. Not that that should really matter. He finished with three, not five. Like Yeah. Um, and, and there was a moment, like, he got too early. Doc pulled him. He came back in in the second quarter and, like, immediately picked up the third foul trying to defend Jokic. It's not like he was having too much success in this game. I don't know that it would have made any difference. It's quite possible that it wouldn't have. But Zubac was like considerably on the positive side of the ledger in terms of plus minus in this series. And Harrell was the complete opposite. And uh, I think it was 70 minutes in which he shared the floor with Jokic in the series. And the Clippers were minus 47 in those minutes. So that was a problem. I thought the Clippers on both sides of the ball were just kind of disorganized and aimless. Like there were just so many times, even like regardless of whatever coverage they were supposed to be playing whether they were blitzing or switching, hedging. There were so many instances in in which guys were just like pointing. Nobody seemed to know what their assignment was. There was miscommunication happening all over the floor. And then offensively, like so many possessions just devolved into like one switch and like an ISO and not even a particularly profitable ISO would be Marcus Morris trying to score on Torrey Craig there was just like a lot of stagnancy in their offense. And honestly, like, you know, we're talking about how much they struggled to defend Jokic and, and Murray and like that two man game. But bottom line is they scored 89 points in this game. Their offense was a complete disaster, especially in the second half, 33 points in the second half. And okay. Yes. Some of that falls on doc rivers, but 
a whole lot of that's got to fall on Kawhi and Paul George too. They were terrible. They were terrible. And that to me is probably the most surprising thing at, at all of this. Like not necessarily Paul George, because we've seen obviously that he can really struggle in high leverage spots. It's happened to him in the past, but for Kawhi to struggle the way that he did after not only what we've seen from him in the past and what he was able to do in huge spots last year, time and again, but how good he's been this postseason and how many times he's bailed the Clippers out. Like, frankly, his supporting cast has not been all that good this postseason. For all the talk of the Clippers' depth, and I know there are a lot of mitigating factors here coming into the bubble, like the Clippers at one point, you know, completely wanting to leave the bubble. Like, they voted to leave, remember, when the, the player strike was happening. They voted to just end the season. Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell, both losing loved ones, mm. having to leave the bubble. Lou Williams making a poor choice and doing so in irresponsible fashion, having to spend 10 days in quarantine. Harrell essentially you know, not playing until the playoffs started, coming in looking very rusty, out of shape, like some circumstances beyond their control. But... For most of this playoffs, it like hasn't mattered because Kawhi has been able to carry them. And so coming into a Game 7, you're like, look, Jokic has been fantastic in this series. You could have maybe argued that in the first six games, he was like on par with Kawhi. I, I wouldn't have said that, actually. I would have said that Kawhi was still like, had still been the best player in the series, was still the best player going into Game 7. That's the guy that I trusted to eventually, you know, pull his team across the finish line. And he sucked. And I, I don't entirely know what happened, but like, man, the, the stat that I keep looking at is he got zero free throw attempts. He did not get to the line one single time. Like, when is the last time that that's happened for Kawhi? You know, let alone in a game seven. That is unfathomable to me. Yeah, and you know how many uh, free throw attempts Paul George had? One, I think. Yeah, he had as many free throw attempts for the game as he had three point attempts that hit the side of the backboard in the fourth <laughs> quarter. One. Um, listen, the Kawhi stuff, it was jarring and it was downright unsettling. How many times on this show uh, and in my writing in these playoffs have I referred to Kawhi Leonard as inevitable? Because when the chips are down in these like must win games or in these very kind of like almost must win moments of games where it's like they got to win these minutes. They got to turn it around. And now how many times have we seen, whether it was this season and this month with the Clippers last year with the Raptors and before that with the Spurs, we've seen Kawhi Leonard just kind of hit this gear of like forcefulness and determination that quite frankly, I'd say when he hits it, maybe LeBron James and Kevin Durant can overcome it. Maybe. And other than that, I don't think there is a player or a team or a talent on earth that can overcome Kawhi Leonard when he hits that gear. And I think we just got so, not I think, we, we have just gotten so used to him finding that gear whenever him and his team need him to find it over the last few years. You know, I talked a couple episodes ago about how um, when you consider the fact that Kawhi got injured in game one of the 2017 finals, like he had technically won six playoff series in a row. And, you know, we openly discussed on that show, given the inevitability of Kawhi, like, could the Spurs have won that 2017 series that he got hurt, like, against the Warriors? It's, we had gotten so used to Kawhi just showing up at this all-time level when it mattered that the sight of him not just shooting poorly, because 
every all-time great has like you know lost their jumper in a big game here or there. What was so jarring about it was he just wasn't forceful. He wasn't Kawhi Leonard. He just looked like any other all-star who's prone to bad games here and there. Not like the all-time great we know he is, and that has always showed up for these games. So to your point, whether it was the zero free throws, whether it was him deferring to teammates far too often in stretches of the game where the Nuggets were either clawing back into it or starting to pull away, and instead of the patented kind of Kawhi FU drives that we got used to that end with a dunk or a foul or whatever it may be, it was Kawhi dumping the ball down to Marcus Morris to ISO against Nikola Jokic. It was Kawhi passing it along the perimeter for a Patrick Beverly above the break three where he holds the pose even though the shot missed by about 17 feet. Like, it just was jarring. Like, I, I keep coming back to that word, but it genuinely was jarring to watch Kawhi Leonard not look like Kawhi Leonard and defer and not take the game by the balls. And I don't know what else there is to say. I mean, the guy was 6 of 22. He scored... 14 points on 24 possessions without a single free throw in game seven. I mean, you're saying like everybody's going to have a cold shooting night and untimely though it may have been okay. His shot wasn't there. That happens. But like, do you you know And he's able to make up for it by just imposing his will and getting to the rim and getting to the free throw line. And look, like the Nuggets defense was good and they were pinching in and they were packing the paint and Jokic as a rim protector was fantastic. But Jokic as a rim protector should not be enough to deter Kawhi Leonard from getting to and scoring at the rim. Putting pressure on the rim, putting pressure on the officials to like make foul calls because he's getting penetration and like initiating contact. He just wasn't doing any of that. He was settling for jumpers and runners and he didn't have his touch and his jumper was a little bit long all night. Uh, and he just, I guess for whatever reason, wasn't able or willing to work around that by just getting himself to the basket. You know what else? Um, Kawhi had a bad shooting night and a really bad time. Game yeah, seven. Game seven last year. Against yeah. the Sixers last year. You know what the difference was in that game? He took 39 shots. He went 16 of 39 from the field and had eight free throw attempts. Think about that. He took third, like that's what I'm talking about when I say we had just gotten so used to him just being so forceful in these situations, in these must-win games, and taking the game by the horns. And yeah, to see him just kind of defer to other guys was so unsettling. You know, in the end, him and Paul George <clears throat> combined, combined for 24 points on 10 of 38 shooting, 24 points on 45 possessions in a game seven. And 2 of 18 in the second half. 0 of 11 in the fourth quarter. They combined to go 0 of 11 in the fourth quarter. Look, I, the Clippers gave, we know this, they gave up Shea Gilders Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, and what, five first-rounders plus two pick swaps or three plus two? Three of their own first-rounders, two Miami firsts, and two pick swaps. Okay. So, so five firsts and two first-round swaps. So they, they gave up. Um, they traded and or gave up control of seven first-round picks, plus Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Danilo Gallinari, to get Paul George, but essentially to land both George and Kawhi. Mm-hmm. And if we're being honest, most teams would have done the same. In the end, though, those two guys go 0 for 11 in the fourth quarter, 10 of 38 in a Game 7 situation. And 
as I mentioned, we're watching Marcus Morris try to ISO Nikola Jokic in the fourth quarter or Patrick Beverly holding that pose on a bricked jumper after bricked jumper. Like, how, how does that happen? You know, how does that happen? And, and to, you know, to Doc's point about them being gassed, okay, fair enough. Humans get tired, even elite athletes. But the Nuggets have played more games in the last four weeks than they have. They went to game seven and had to come back from 3-1 down in the first round. You know, you mentioned all the stuff the Clippers had to deal with in the bubble and coming into the bubble. The Nuggets might have been the most decimated team coming into the bubble with some of the injuries they had. Like They, they, they had multiple guys test positive for COVID. Jokic had COVID. Yep. Um, they had a bunch of guys who were late coming into the bubble, whether yep. that was COVID-related or not. You know, Gary Harris dealing with his hip injury doesn't come back until game six against the Jazz. Jamal Murray was dealing with an ankle injury at the start, didn't play in a bunch of the seeding games. They didn't have Will Barton at all. He was a really important starter for them all season long. There, there's no excuses. Like every team was dealing with some measure of adversity. This is all new for everybody. And especially for the Clippers, who sort of approached the regular season as like a ramp up to the playoffs. Like pretty much the entire time they were kind of coasting. Kawhi was being load managed. Like if any team doesn't have the excuse of like our conditioning just wasn't right. I feel like it's this team, even given all the adverse circumstances, like every team to some extent is dealing with those. And so I don't think anybody is going to be here for those kind of excuses for this Clippers team. Um, because I think, you know, we've seen like other championship contenders have, I, I guess you could say the Bucks flamed out for maybe some similar reasons. They were never the same team in the bubble either. But I mean, the Lakers are rolling. The Celtics are rolling and, you know, like the Raptors ultimately were eliminated, but like, I don't, you know, their guys were playing 45 plus minutes a night in the second round and didn't seem any worse for the wear and weren't complaining about their conditioning after losing in game seven, didn't completely roll over in the second half. Like this was embarrassing, man. The Clippers folded. The Clippers Clippers embarrassed themselves. I don't think there's any other way to put it. And that falls on it on everybody, and I don't know, man. Like the, it's they they're gonna have a lot of soul searching to do this off season, I think. And um, I don't think it's gonna be a comfortable off season. And they're gonna have to figure out what went wrong and why it went wrong. I mean, I thought you know this quote from Kawhi after the game certainly seemed to speak volumes. He said, "When it comes to the team chemistry, knowing." what we should run to get the ball in spots or just if someone's getting doubled or they're packing the paint, get smarter as a team. Basketball IQ got to be better. Yeah. And chemistry, I mean, like he wasn't the only one who brought up chemistry in the post game, right? Like pretty much every Clipper who spoke cited that. And I don't know how you go about fixing something like that. You know, which team does chemistry and basketball IQ about as well as any in the NBA? (laughs) Tell me. Kawhi's former team, the Raptors. Yeah. Listen, it they they failed miserably, as you mentioned. They embarrassed themselves. And I think, you know, part of the reason that t- basketball Twitter is having such a field day with this is that this isn't just any team embarrassing themselves or any contender, you know, or championship favor embarrassing themselves. This is the loudest team in the NBA embarrassing itself. You know, this is the team that trolled Damian Lillard you know, for a missed free throw late in the game when most of these guys can't hold Damian Lillard's jock strap if NBA players wore jock straps. Um, 
and they're the teams and they're the team embarrassing themselves. And um, I mentioned this in the piece I wrote, but like they were the loudest team in the NBA. Fair enough. Had they accomplished the task they were built to complete? Had they, you know, had they won the title? Had they made the finals? Heck, had they made the conference finals for the first time in franchise history and had a good series against LeBron's Lakers? Talk that talk, at least some of it. But when you're the loudest team in the NBA and engage in some of the boisterous bench behavior that the Clippers do, and then they embarrass themselves like this, it's a reminder that you know they, they exposed what was always true about this team. And that's that at its core, this is a bunch of scrappy reserves who started carrying themselves like champions because Kawhi Leonard showed up and they yeah. embarrassed themselves. Um, <laughs> all right, let's, we can circle back to this, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far down the Clippers rabbit hole without giving some serious props to the Nuggets because I thought, you know, they took this series as much as the Clippers let it go. They, I thought they played brilliantly. Like they were disciplined. They would get down double digits and, there was just no panic in them, right? Like they just kept running their stuff, patient, under control, confident. I mean, this was just like, a, I thought a masterpiece from Jamal Murray, like the way that he not only shot the ball, but just like continued to get into the teeth of the defense. And he had a whole bunch of like floaters in that first half, especially when he was going off on Shamit. That we second quarter was... We just couldn't stay in front of him at all. One of the things that, I mean, Murray's I, generally, I think, improved a lot as a passer. And I do think, like, he, he still has room to grow in that regard. And that's, to me, like, one of the next stages of his evolution is just to get even better as a playmaker. But one thing that he does really, really well is those underhanded bounce passes to split double teams. And he made a bunch of those to find Jokic in the middle of the floor when he was slipping underneath those traps and setting him up for those four-on-threes that Jokic absolutely dined out on. And, you know, so this is kind of, it's twofold, right? Because I think Murray did a, a good job breaking those Clippers traps. Those Clippers traps were also garbage. Like they were bad traps. And it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to blitz Murray and force him to give up the ball. You know, we know that's going to put us in a precarious spot because if Jokic gets the ball in a four on three, we're in trouble, but we're at least going to make it really difficult for Jamal Murray to thread that pass to Nikola Jokic. But they didn't like they put two on the ball, but it was not at all forceful. Like like everything the Clippers did in this game, and especially in the second half, there was no force to it. There was no purpose to it. It was just okay. I guess we're putting two on the ball now, you know. And, and their rotations behind those traps were also quite slow, and they were just giving up a ton of open threes. And they they trusted that the Nuggets were going to keep missing because the Nuggets were just bonking a ton of open threes in the first half. I guess the Clippers thought that would continue, and it did not. Uh, Jeremy Grant finally saw a couple go down in the second half. Paul Millsap saw a couple go down in the second half. I don't know. It was just like, again, I don't know exactly what the answer was given how well like Murray and Jokic were playing, but maybe like some more pick, like conventional pick and roll coverage where like one of PG or Kawhi is guarding Murray and they're just fighting to get over top of the screen. I don't know, fight to stay attached and bringing their big up close to the level of the screen, maybe not all the way so that you can kind of be in Murray's airspace and take away the pull up, but not get beat going downhill and not let Jokic get behind you necessarily. You're playing it like a little bit more straight up, like a shallow drop and trusting that two of the best perimeter defenders in the world can actually like get through screens. 
But I mean, no matter what it what they did, it just seemed like the Nuggets had an answer for it. And, and just to just like trace this whole Nuggets run back to the first round is so mind blowing, man. Because they were down and out against the Jazz, getting absolutely picked apart, playing some of the worst pick and roll defense I've ever seen, legitimately. Down three one, down fifteen points in the third quarter of Game Five in the first round against Utah, a so-so team, you know, a nice little team that was just like embarrassing the Nuggets. And they stormed back to win that game five behind what was in that game, a transcendent Jamal Murray performance. He comes back and drops 50 in game six to tie that series. By the skin of their teeth, they escaped that series in game seven. Literally a Mike Conley jumper that Almost yeah, laughing. I mean, like the last the last play of that game, Gary Harris, who I think we can talk about uh, because he's had a huge role to play in their defensive turnaround. Gary Harris pokes the ball away from Donovan Mitchell from behind. The Nuggets are up two. There's like ten seconds left, and they get a fast break going the other way. And I actually like so. Torrey Craig would have been the scapegoat, I guess, in this situation. But I think this was actually Murray's fault because Murray had the ball on the break. And he should have dribbled it out. But what he did instead was he passed the ball to Torrey Craig and kind of gave Craig no choice but to try and shoot the layup. Craig bricked the layup. (laughs) The Jazz get the rebound and go back the other way. And Conley at the buzzer gets a pretty clean look at a three that goes halfway down. And the Nuggets survive. And then, you know, like you said, they they go down 3-1 to the Clippers. Once again, look dead in the water. Down 16 in the second half of game five come back to win that one somehow down 19 in the third quarter of game six, come back to win that one. They were, uh, they were never really in that much trouble in the second half of this one. Uh, but they were down 12, like you said, in the second quarter. And I, I just like the extent to which they have maintained their composure and just taken the Clippers best punch and come back and hit them harder. This team that, you know, like, look, I've been calling them my, like, they're my championship pick all season. I've been saying that. And I'm not the only one. A lot of people have felt confident about the Clippers ultimately, you know, being the last team standing here. They were the favorites. They were the betting favorites to win it as recently as yesterday. Right. Um, and this, this punchy Nuggets team that's been on the ropes for the entire playoffs. They've just been on the ropes the entire time. Somehow that's the team that takes them down. They won six straight elimination games. It's uh, it's pretty incredible. And they are the first team that has ever come back from 3-1 deficits in back-to-back series. So that's or pretty in, special. Or in one playoffs at all. Right. Yeah, exactly. No team has done it twice in one postseason run. Um, it's, I think, only happened 14 times in NBA history. So to do it back-to-back is obviously pretty special. And I think speaks really highly of the character of this team, how hard they play, how much they believe in themselves. And I just think they deserve all the credit in the world because they made this happen. You know, like the Clippers folded in the end, but this wasn't all self-inflicted. You know, Uh, the Nuggets inflicted a lot of that pain as well. Absolutely. Um, The Clippers... The Clippers imploded in the face of the same adversity that the Nuggets have overcome like 10 times in this postseason, but the Nuggets played at a high enough level to bring that adversity to the Clippers. And and yeah, I, I definitely want people to have their fun with 
this Clippers team because, you know, they they soiled themselves in front of a national audience. But I also hope that people give all the credit in the world to the to the Nuggets because, you know, especially in the NBA where in general, you know, the same franchise will dominate, the same franchises will dominate for long periods of time. And a franchise like a franchise like the Nuggets, you know, doesn't always get this opportunity. I, I hope people are really appreciating what this specific Nuggets team has done and and also like appreciating how bright the future is for this team. You know, the future is now in a lot of ways because they're eight wins away from a championship, but the future really is so bright for this team. Like when you look at what Jokic already is and the playoff resume he's already established for himself, and when you look at the leap Jamal Murray has taken this postseason, I mean, you know, is Jamal Murray going to come back and be consistent for an 82 game season plus playoffs maybe not yet but he's already taken a leap in these playoffs that I don't know how many people thought was possible anytime soon so and and I've mentioned this a lot too even on like Twitter and I think maybe last year in podcasts but I think it's cool too the way Mike Malone has grown as a coach with this team like he's he's grown with this team and has gotten better at his job as these young guys have gotten better at basketball and it's all around pretty cool to watch hundred percent. And, you know, for as much as we kind of ragged on the Clippers for all the excuses they made uh, in the wake of this loss and a lot of them talking about just like the disjointedness and how this team kind of just came together this year. They didn't feel like they were familiar enough with each other and that it would take time to build that chemistry. I, I do think there's some truth to that, even though the Raptors, you know, won the championship last year under Somewhat similar circumstances. I don't think it's entirely the same. I think the foundation the Raptors had in place when Kawhi got there was a lot stronger than what the Clippers had in place. But I think, you know, the the continuity that the Nuggets have kind of showed through. And this is a team that had, you know, I think they were top three in the number of returning minutes that they had from last year. I think it was them, Milwaukee, and Orlando were like the top three teams in terms of continuity this year. And I think we saw that that can make a difference. Uh, we typically treat that as something that like helps teams more in the regular season than it does in the playoffs. But I do think that familiarity was was a big thing. And certainly when contrasted with you know all the stuff we were talking about, about the kind of miscommunications and the disjointedness and the stagnancy that we saw from the Clippers, even early in this series, we were talking about it and we're like, you know, like the Nuggets are kind of playing better and playing harder than the Clippers are. We just trusted the Clippers' talent would would ultimately win out. Mostly, we and, trusted Kawhi. Yeah, yeah, and and it wasn't enough. Uh, and obviously, you know, like Kawhi couldn't afford to have a performance like this. Is the thing uh, they needed him to be at his best, and he wasn't. And you know, here we are. And I also think, like I said, I was going to kind of circle back to Gary Harris. I just think it's it's pretty astounding how big a difference his return made. And I do think everybody else on the Nuggets also like started defending better. Like Michael Porter Jr. has been better. Jokic has been better. But I think we're seeing just like how big of a difference it makes for everybody on the floor, every link in the chain when the defense at the point of attack is strong. And when they didn't have Harris there at the beginning and they were just getting blown by at the point of attack, it put so much pressure on everybody else. It put so much pressure on Jokic 
to be the last line of defense, you know, whether he was dropping back, whether he was coming up high to the level, it puts pressure on everybody else who has to rotate behind and kind of plug gaps. And when you have a guy who is able to fight through screens, who is able to provide resistance and prevent dribble penetration, it just like makes everybody's job so much easier. And Harris is that good. Like he is a guy who makes everybody's jobs way easier. And I think like, I've always really liked Gary Harris as a defender. And even I don't think like I really gave him enough credit. And and I think I'm not going to make that mistake again, because it's really evident to me uh, how important he is to that team and that team's defense. He was the unsung hero of game seven in the first round as well. Uh, if you remember, and and you know, as you've mentioned, he his return turned that defense around, and yeah, I mean, just another kind of component of this all around great feel good story that is this Nuggets team, both like their growth over the last few years, but even just specifically their performance in the last like four weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. Yeah, just like kind of looking ahead to the Clippers off season. I mean, do you think what kind of I just like I can't even really conceive of what kind of moves they can make. Like they're pretty much just going to be running it back, right? Like, did this playoff run kind of nudge Harold out the door? Like, is he gone now? Are they going to try and like offload Lou Williams in a trade? Are they, I don't know, going to try and use Shamit? I guess as a sweetener to maybe pull somebody back in a deal. Like, I, I really don't know how much maneuverability they have right now. And look, I, I think, you I mean, like they could run the same team back and win a championship a hundred percent. So I'm not necessarily saying they have to do something, but I am sort of just curious how they approach this off season, especially when you go into the off season with that Kawhi Leonard comment ringing in your ears about how the team doesn't have enough basketball IQ. I mean, is that, a shot across the bow to the front office, like saying, go and get me some smarter players. I mean, Marcus Morris, who they paid a first rounder to get is also going to be an unrestricted free agent. Like, is he going to be back? I'm just, um, I'm interested and kind of confounded, honestly, about what the Clippers are going to even do here. I, I think Harold and Lou Williams are both gone. I, I think, I think, I mean, Harold's going to walk, I think, as a free agent, but I also think he probably, maybe not even all to his, you know, to his fault. We know that, you know, he lost a loved one and got to the bubble late and stuff, but I do think his performance in the bubble in the playoffs probably cost him some money as a pending free agent. But I think when you, like, look at Kawhi's comments, um, you know, when you look at the fact that Doc couldn't help himself almost in – and giving those guys too much rope, maybe because he's like, he's gone down with them before and and they were part of this kind of culture the Clippers had built last year and the last couple of years of being this kind of like scrappy underdog team. I almost feel like you need to rid yourself of that, you know? And if that means Harold walking and finding a trade partner for Lou Williams, like it, I think you can rid yourselves of that without necessarily taking that much of a step back. Like, yeah, Lou and Trez give you um, a really deep team. They give you an advantage most nights when you go to your bench. But as we've seen, like, the last few weeks, like I, I don't know how much those guys are giving you in the playoffs. Like, Lou can be played off the floor, straight up. And I think a big problem, um, even in this game, is like between Shamit's injury and I think because of the fact that 
you know, Paul George has been a shell of himself like off and on throughout the playoffs. And because Kawhi randomly like kind of didn't show up for this one, you know, what question I posed coming into the playoffs was whether if Paul George can just like be himself and Kawhi is who he is, the Clippers no longer need to rely on Lou Williams offense. They're not just like some scrappy underdog anymore. That's trying to find points somewhere. Like they don't need to rely on Lou Williams offense. So if everything just goes according to plan, it doesn't matter whether Lou will gets played off the floor or not. Cause they don't need Lou will on the offensive end. And they've got plenty of defensive problem solvers in the backcourt. But I feel like maybe part of the problem that forced Doc's hand tonight was that neither of Paul George or Kawhi really showed up. I don't know. Maybe he felt he needed a little more of like Lou Will's creation. I think to lose credit, he did have, I think, like six assists and one turnover. But, you know, other than that, if you get what you're supposed to get from Kawhi and Paul George, you don't need Lou Williams like in a playoff setting. And I think you can live with Trez walking, you know, as much as maybe he's been a part of the culture here the last few years. I don't think losing him for nothing is like a backbreaker. Um so yeah, I, I would not be surprised if both those guys are gone and it's just kind of part of the Clippers distancing themselves from that underdog team that, yeah, it was nice and maybe it helped them lay the foundation for this team, but it's just not necessary anymore. They're competing for championships now and you're going to make tough decisions when you get to that point. And I, I really think both those guys will be gone. I mean, what kind of team is looking for a Lou Williams, you know, and what are they, what are they giving up in return for him? That's my question. And like how would you got a reasonable contract? He's only making $8 million dollars next season. I know, but so, I mean, you're, you're trading him to another contender, right? Like if you're a rebuilding team, I don't think you want a high volume guy, um, who, you know, who's going to take touches away from young players and not going to help your defense at all and not necessarily help you build good habits. Like he could, like, I mean, if you, I guess had a a young big who you want just like a good pick and roll partner for, then maybe he'd be a good fit on a younger rebuilding team. But I think for the most part, you're going to be looking at a team that is like competitive and is maybe just like looking to raise its ceiling a bit and give it some offensive punch. I don't know, maybe like the Pacers, a team like that. But I don't know. I don't know that you're getting anything in, in return that makes it worth your while even. Like I feel like they might just be better off hanging on to him honestly and just putting enough depth around him that they can scale back his role in the playoffs. Because to me, the bigger issue was, okay, you had a clearly hobbling Shamit who wasn't even really effective when he was healthy. You have Lou Williams, who you don't really trust and who is kind of getting played off the floor defensively. But then what other guards do you have on the bench? The only other guy was Reggie Jackson, who was a minus nine in four minutes in this game. So... they got to just, I guess, improve their backcourt depth. And if there's a way to do that, you know, using the taxpayers mid-level or making like signing a guy to the veterans minimum, like, I mean, the Bucks got Wes Matthews for the minimum last off season. So, uh, you know, the Clippers need to find, I think somebody like that, you know, just go bargain basement shopping and hope to hit the lottery basically. Um, Jamichael Green, by the way, has a player option for only about $5.1 million next season. I feel like he doesn't pick that up because even in an uncertain offseason, I feel like Jamichael Green can get more than $5 million total dollars on a contract. So, I mean, that's another guy that actually proved pretty important for them. And, and as I mentioned, probably should have got more minutes than Montrezl Harrell in this game and in this series. Yeah. And, and he might be gone too. He'd be a perfect them. guy for the Rockets to sign. Yeah, he would be. Is, um, that, is that your segue? 
Well, I, I do want to talk about the Rockets at some point, but I guess, okay, we can we can leave this behind. We'll talk more about the Nuggets uh, as we get into our Western Conference Final preview because the Nuggets are in the Western Conference Finals. <laughs> Somewhere the Clippers game. have never been. It, it's, man, yeah. It's, it's actually astonishing. And, I, like, if you believe in curses, I, I mean, this is as clear as evidence can get uh, that this curse is real because... To me, it was like when it seemed like the season was going to be over in March, I was like, oh, well, like, of course, this is the Clippers curse at, at work because the only way that they were not going to make it to the conference finals is if the season literally got canceled because of a pandemic and somehow the season resumed and somehow they still didn't make it yeah. despite being up 3-1 and up double digits in the second half of every single game after they went up 3-1. Turns uh, out... Uh... The only way the Clippers could have left a season with their head heads held high was if the season had been canceled. Yeah, I mean that would have been a better outcome for them, honestly. And I, some of this has got to fall on Kawhi because Paul George was the guy that he told him to go after, you know, and like he, by all accounts, was not willing to just sign. Like maybe he would have. I don't know. Maybe if the Clippers had played hardball and said, "Look, we're just not going to give up all this stuff for Paul George." He would have signed there anyway, but he kind of forced their hand and in a way got them into this mess. So I guess it's going to be on him to get them out of it. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL, and the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. The Eastern Conference Finals is already underway, and we saw a pretty wild game one tonight. (laughs) We're barely going to even have time to talk about it. Uh, which is a shame because it was a fantastic game that just happened to get overshadowed by the craziness that followed. But the Miami Heat pulled that one out in overtime because the Miami Heat are apparently just incapable of losing. It's insane. They're 9-1 the, and one in the playoffs now. It's You and I, we spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff and we dig into numbers and watch these teams play a lot and form some opinions based on what we've seen and what the numbers are saying and... Uh, our gut to a certain extent. But, you know, this is like two rounds in a row. And obviously this series has a long way to go. And I'm not like, I picked the Celtics to win in six. I'll stick with that prediction. But like all year, I have felt just like not great about this Heat team for a variety of reasons that I can rationalize, that makes sense to me in my head, that I can explain clearly. And... It's like when it gets to nut cutting time, like it just doesn't matter, right? Like this team really does have yeah. this ineffable sort of characteristic about it that just They're nut cutters. They can cut nuts with the best of them. <laughs> they it just all that just kind of goes out the window, you know? They supersede ostensible tactical advantages that their opponents have over them by sheer force of will, smarts. Uh, intuition and 
it's like this entire game. I just, I, I felt like the Celtics were in control of the game. I thought the Celtics were having like a bit easier time running their offense and getting the shots that they wanted. I thought that they had the heat scouted really well and were doing a great job kind of sitting on their pet actions and snuffing it out. And then suddenly I looked up and Jimmy Butler is hitting a three with 20 seconds left in regulation to put the heat up one. And it's like, how did this happen? How did it happen? It's crazy. Like they're so resilient and I, I just, they've made a believer out of me as much as I keep saying that I don't fully believe in them and keep picking against them. I've had no choice but to believe that there is some special characteristic about this team that allows them to keep winning and uh, they could very well win them a championship. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason I was so high on them throughout the year is be, it was because I just did truly believe and do truly believe that they they have a good mix of special stuff you can't quantify with actual basketball excellence mixed in there you know it's not like they're just this like scrappy um intangibles team that doesn't make a lot of sense on the court and they're somehow here like uh, you know as i mentioned so many times this year like whether it's you know looking at teams that you need like an alpha star to win in the playoffs okay like say what you will about jimmy butler's shooting during the season but i don't think anyone could have denied that he's the type of alpha star that will thrive in the playoffs and that can drag a team if not to a championship at least deep into the playoffs like yes this is his first time getting to a conference finals but i don't think anyone ever doubted jimmy butler could be the best player on a conference finalist team right they have in bam and a bio a almost prototypical modern center you know that can um, completely neutralize an opposing team's offensive game plan while also anchoring his own team's offense with his playmaking. They've got, you know, okay, I didn't think Goran Dragic still had this left in him, but they have, like, you know, the crafty guard and, and a guy who can still be a bit of a floor general in Goran Dragic. They've got one of the best coaches in the league, hands down, and a guy that um, is one of the type of coaches that excels in the playoffs because he is looking to exploit every advantage on every possession the the intangible side they've got the whole heat culture thing they've got you know i think jimmy butler talked about it too like or jay crowder might have a part of the culture there that what he's learned in his short time is like we're going to be in the best shape of any team in the nba like we're going to be in better shape than the other team that's part of heat culture like those things matter you know um and and that's the thing i just think they have this perfect blend that when you put it all together like the actual basketball reasons plus the intangibles the grit like some of the force of will that honestly just comes from jimmy butler too like put heat culture aside the drive that ultimately won them the game in game one where jason tatum a pretty strong player in his own right bounced off jimmy butler like it was nothing the end one there the, i think it was the end of overtime that won them the game like just you put it all together and it's like like why wouldn't this team succeed in the playoffs you know I mean, so much of it, honestly, so much of it comes down to Bam. Like, Bam was so good in game one, even before the block, which was, you know, just one of the most spectacular physical plays that I've seen. Just like the, the, the strength, the timing. He wasn't like directly in front of Tatum when he goes up for that block, right? Like Tatum's kind of behind him and he has to reach back to block that shot. And that was like... You know, we talked about the Kawhi middle finger block on the Jamal Murray dunk. Tatum was way further above the rim on this dunk attempt than Murray was on his. 
and bringing the ball down with a considerable amount of force. And even if you just look at the picture and where Bam's hand and like how his wrist (laughs) was cocked back when he blocked that shot, I mean, it was just honestly mind blowing. But like before that, there's just like so many possessions where he is keeping that Miami offense humming as a playmaking hub from the elbow. Like he picked out Jimmy on cuts so many different times and Butler, like you want to talk about how Butler has managed to be basically as effective as he's ever been this season, despite the fact that his jump shot completely fell apart on him. His cutting has been unbelievable and what has allowed his cutting in a lot of ways uh, to flourish is the fact that the heat have this high post playmaker that's going to hit him every single time. And bam, I think he wound up with nine assists in this game. And then in the pick and roll, he just, first of all, like them putting him on Tice just kind of eliminates Tice almost as a screening option for the Celtics. So just right there, it's like their preferred screener is no longer effective as a screener because you know the Heat are going to switch that action and Bam is going to stonewall anybody that tries to go at him. Kemba Walker kept trying to do it. And I don't know if we'll see him keep doing that, but like every single team that the Heat have played against, the same thing has happened where guards try to go at him on switches thinking they have some kind of mismatch and realizing very quickly that they don't. Um, and even when they weren't switching, like he was just coming up to like just below the level of the screen. And that was still enough for him to contain Kemba in the pick and roll. No problem. Um, and the Heat are also just like fine with the other end of that switch too. Whoever winds up getting switched onto Tice, I don't think they're worried about Tice doing any damage against them in the post. So that was one way they were able to kind of muck up Boston's offense. But I also thought, you know, Tatum, who had a great game for the most part and was doing a really good job of seeking out mismatches, getting like hero, none, dragage switched onto him and cooking those guys one on one kind of went away from that late and started settling for like some really bad shots. And that was a big reason. I think that the Celtics offense kind of weaves to the finish line too. Like they sort of stopped moving the ball and, and just started settling for not great shots. And the heat on the other hand, they're like probably the most motion heavy offense in the league as far as player movement. And they just never stopped moving. And ultimately they were just kind of able to wear the Celtics down and get across the finish line on the strength of that Butler and one and that incredible BAM block. Eric Spolster is really good, man. Like, you know, you, you mentioned like the motion heavy heat offense. This is a guy that, you know, at various points of his career has had success in like less motion heavy, more like isolation based offense. Like he's, he's been able to adapt to his rosters, to his superstars, to his, like, and he's just found a way to win with like very different combinations of players and very different playing styles. And yeah, to see, to see the Heat winning the way they are right now with this roster, I think it's just kind of like another notch in Eric Spolster's belt. And, you know, like going back to the the list of things I was mentioning of why it makes sense that they're winning in the playoffs. One thing I didn't even mention when going through all that is their shooting. They were also the best shooting team in the NBA, right? So like, why not? crazy because their two best players are non-shooters, basically. I know. Non-three-point shooters. Yeah. yeah. No, Butler hit two huge threes yeah. in this game. Yeah. And has been hitting them in the playoffs for the most yeah. part. But yeah, like Bam's not even a threat to shoot from deep. Um, so yeah, it, it's again, I think that's a testament um, to Bam's playmaking, but also to the system Spolster's put in place. And uh, and yeah, it's just, you put it all together. Like, right, they've got the star, they've got the supporting star, who's a very prototypical, like modern center. 
they've got the culture and the grit and all that, but they're all, they've got the shooting. Like it just kind of all comes together. And I don't know, man, in a year when there isn't some like indomitable super team out there, why not them? This season, certainly they have an opening. And I don't know if that opening is going to be there in future seasons. One given Butler's age and injury history, like I'm not putting anything past Butler at this point. Like I think he can continue to be elite for like the next couple of years, but this is like the sweet spot for them right now when Bam is just kind of blowing up and Jimmy is still in his prime. And like you said, there isn't that indomitable super team out there. Like this one season might not be their window, but like their window is right now, you know, like the next couple of seasons and this opportunity might be as good as any for them to actually win one. And, you know, one guy we haven't mentioned is Dragic. Like Dragic has been incredible. Like he has been, he's been their third star and like he's absolutely played at an all-star level in the playoffs. And it's kind of crazy because he, not that he'd been bad in like the previous couple of seasons, but he was pretty clearly on the decline, I thought, and just didn't to me have like quite the same burst where he was able to just like blow by guys off the dribble. Um, he wasn't shooting the ball quite as well. He wasn't finishing quite as well around the basket as he as he had in his all-star heyday. And now it's like, it's 2014 again, you know? Like this is all NBA level dragage where he's always been super strong and guys kind of bounce off of him. And some of that has to do with his, you know, sneaky little tricks where the he- dark arts that he practices? Yeah, like he just kind of dusted Kemba off the dribble like a whole bunch of times in this game. And, and got into the middle of the floor at will. And, uh, you know, as much as I talk about Bam's playmaking from the elbow, like a lot of what they did in this game was predicated on just letting Dragic collapse the defense. That led to a lot of Dragic baskets, but it also led to a lot of swing sequences that created open threes. And if he can keep playing the way that he's playing, then it's like, I don't know, the sky's the limit for this team. You know, because yeah. that's a team with three legitimate offensive stars and a whole lot of defensive talent. And the thing that I keep thinking is going to railroad them is that their best shooters and their best defensive players are not the same players. Like their best shooters aren't great defenders and their best defenders aren't great shooters. And I keep thinking that eventually that's going to bite them because how do you keep juggling the rotation and coming up with these lineups that aren't going to get you burned at one end of the floor or the other? And they keep finding ways to scheme around it. So I, I'm slowly becoming a heat believer. I still do like the Celtics in this series because I think ultimately they do just have this element of like individual shot creation that the heat can't match. And I don't know if like the heat can continue to Jerry rig this thing to the extent that like, it's going to be enough to overcome what the Celtics can do just by sort of sheer shot making ability. And they should add Gordon Hayward at some point in this series. Right. And we really don't, like, we don't know what he's going to look like when he comes back. And given how some of these guys have looked coming back from injuries or just, like, being outside of the bubble, I'm not going to expect too much from Hayward or or think that he is necessarily going to swing the series. I think even if he doesn't come back or if he comes back and is only kind of a bit player, I still think that I would pick the Celtics to win, but it's going to be really really tough yeah um i think the last maybe note i'd I'd mentioned there about the heat and their opening this year and it's something that i said about 
like when the Bucks lost to the Raptors last year. And I think it's a, maybe a good point to bring up because it ties into the opportunity that's presented itself for Miami, but also to the opportunity that maybe the Clippers squandered. And that's that um, sometimes a team's like first really good chance to win a title ends up being its last, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, it's so easy to get caught up in the, whether it was Milwaukee last year, it's like, okay, well, whatever happens with Giannis, like they still have Giannis for a couple of years. He's transcendent with the Clippers. You can say, okay, even if one, like even if Paul George, they still got Kawhi Leonard, but it's like, man, you, you don't know a, you don't know um, like the whims of superstars who are the power brokers in this league, but you don't know so many things, injuries, um, a global pandemic popping up and maybe derailing. So he's like, I think what we all should have learned in the last few years in the NBA from this league in general is that there is no way you can project like a year out, let alone two years out. So to assume that a team, because of its infrastructure or its best player, whatever the case may be, the market is going to have this long run of contention and that they can almost afford to let one pass by, like it doesn't work like that. And sometimes your first chance, first good chance is your best chance or your last chance. And yeah, I I think, you know, Clippers fans should be at least a little worried about that right now. And Heat fans should hope that this team takes advantage of the opportunity because it's, you know, it's no guarantees that just because things settle over the next couple of years, they'll be back here. A hundred percent. I think that's a great point. And it reminds me of Chris Paul's anecdote about, you know, that first really good Hornets team that he was on. And I guess the only really good Hornets team that he was on, but like, when that team was young and coming into its own and they won 56 games and they wound up going to seven with the Spurs in the second round, actually had a two nothing lead in that series. And it just seemed like they were going to keep getting better. And that was just going to be a stumbling block for them. He was young. David West was young. They were this team on the up and up. And uh, Morris Peterson was like the vet on that team and gave a speech to the team telling them, exactly that you know that like nothing is guaranteed and you don't know that you're going to be back here and have this opportunity again you really do need to like enjoy this and chris paul kind of remembered brushing it off a little bit and thinking like no we'll definitely be back here and obviously that team never was and i mean it took chris paul a decade after that to even get to the conference finals so certainly uh nothing's guaranteed and i I think you know, the Heat have an opportunity here. I do think for the Celtics, if I had to pick, that would be the team that I would think is going to have more opportunities in the future just because their base of talent and their base of young talent is pretty deep and pretty incredible. And just having like two wings as talented as Tatum and Jalen Brown at like 22 years of age is a pretty good place to start. But Again, even with them, you never really know. Yeah, I think the, the if there's one team left standing that absolutely needs to capitalize on this year, it's the Lakers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, LeBron still might be the best player in the world. So I think is the best player in the world. So really, like, they could just be in the title hunt for the next, like, three or four years, you know? Like, I, I don't think... That could should doing, surprise us at that point. At this point, we'll um, be doing Down the Rock episode a thousand, like three years from now, and we'll be talking about LeBron at age thirty-eight in his like season number twenty, and how like well, you know, the Lakers better complete their opportunity to forepeat right now because if not, yeah, like there's you know, no way LeBron can keep doing this at age forty-two, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, it'll be the same thing on Twitter with the like year 21 and like the head exploding emoji yeah. while he throws down a dunk on Brawny. Hashtag <laughs> washed grandpa. <laughs> um, all right. That seems like a pretty decent place to leave off. Uh, we will pick this up again later in the week. We'll probably record again on Friday, um, which will be just before Lakers Nuggets tips off. So we can give kind of a detailed breakdown of that series and we'll have one more game from Heat Celtics to talk about. And we can also maybe hit on the Rockets and Raptors, which we didn't get around to this week because I think those teams have really interesting off-seasons ahead. And I think we'd both like to get a chance to do a bit of a post-mortem on those squads. So for now, we're signing off. The Clippers are heading home. The Nuggets are moving on. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. <laughs>